Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to know that the enemy is here this morning. He's been present in all of our services all weekend. So I want to urge you to be on your alert. I want to urge you and encourage you with all my heart to listen and pay strict attention to what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's vitally important. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I would urge you to work very hard, do your very best, staying awake. I'll try to not speak in a monotone. If I see somebody sleeping, I'm going to come down the aisle and stand right over them and preach right over them. What I want to talk to you about this morning is of utmost importance utmost importance. So please, work real hard <laughs> staying awake. Okay? Now we talked last week about learning Christ and the fact that we are no longer what we used to be. And because we're no longer what we used to be, we're to live a new life. We're to put off the old and put on the new. We didn't learn Christ living the old life. We learned Christ on a new road. Remember? True? And Paul has said that we're, because we're new, that we're to put off the old and we're to put on the new self. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is the beginning of the rest of the letter of the epistle the, to uh, the church at Ephesus. But it, this verse this morning, verse 25 that we're going to look at, really begins the instruction of exactly how to put on the new self. Now there's lots and lots of people, Christians, who will, will agree they will understand conceptually that they're new creatures. But how do you put on this new self? How do I get to it? How can I experience it? And that's what Paul begins to unfold for us in this passage. Remember, he says, no longer live as the Gentiles do. And from verse 17 through verse 24, we ended last week, he was speaking in very general terms, and now he's going to get very specific, very particular in how the Christian lives, how they live out, and how they live out this new life. The only reliable evidence, I believe, the only reliable evidence of salvation is not just a past experience of receiving Christ, the real reliable evidence of salvation, of being a Christian, of being born again, is a present life that reflects Jesus Christ. 
There are many, many people who profess to be Christian. Many, many people said, well, I received Christ. I walked down an aisle. I raised my hand. I lifted my head. I made some kind of gesture. While that is important to make a decision, the real validating evidence of salvation is not only that you did that, but it is reflected in the reality of a life that presently, today, reflects Jesus Christ. The question that we want to ask ourselves, is my life reflecting Christ? Are people seeing in my life a clearer and clearer picture of Jesus Christ? That's the issue. Am I decreasing and is he increasing? So, I think it's important for us to understand that very basic concept because it has a bearing on everything else that we're going to discuss from this morning on through the end of this book of Ephesians. Because Paul is going to describe in very particular ways how it is that this person's life reflects Jesus Christ. Very, very uh, definite ways. We are no longer what we were. We are now something wonderfully different. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that nice? We're no longer what we were. We're something brand new, wonderfully different from what we ever were before. And therefore, we, we put off everything that is suggestive of what we once were. We put these things off. And we put on everything that really belongs to and is in tune with this new person that we are in Christ. That's the, that's the theme of the gospel. That's the theme of the working out of the gospel. We put off the old, we put on the new. Studying this week, in my office at home, at my desk, I was saying, Lord, give me one phrase, give me one sentence to encapsulate this great truth. And as I sat there thinking, this, these words came to my mind. New creatures act like new creatures. Isn't that profound? I thought it was brilliant. Do new creatures act like old creatures? No. New creatures act like new creatures. I thought, Lord, that is brilliant. Thank you. And so I thought it was so good that I included it in your notes. Did you see that? New creatures act like new creatures. We put off the old. Why? Because the old is dead. It doesn't make sense to carry around the old man anymore. Because in fact, in reality, the old is dead. Therefore, we put off all the manifestations. We put off all the ways, all the inclinations, all the, all the behaviors, all the habits of the old. Because why? He's dead. And we put on the new because we are new. We put on the new because we are new. I want you to read with me verse 25 through the end of the chapter. We're just going to kind of get a preview of the coming week's attractions. Paul writes, Therefore each of you you notice he uses that word, therefore, again? It's a signal to what he's been talking about. It's based on all this I've told you now. He says, therefore, this is how you live. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. 
for we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So there's a whole lot of stuff there, and we're going to study through that in the next weeks. But it's important that we know that we're, we're no longer what we once were. We're new creatures. And new creatures act as new creatures. Now let me ask you a question. When we become Christians, does that mean that automatically all is well with us? No, absolutely not. All is not well with us. I mean, there is a very significant transformation that has occurred in our life, right? There's a fundamental difference that's much better about us. We're brand new spiritually. We're alive to God. We're no longer slaves to sin. But all is not well with us yet. We have just begun to enter into what I call the fight of faith. The fight of faith. Say that with me. The fight of faith. All is not well. The battle rages all around me and in me. The spirit wars against the flesh. The world is set against me. And my enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking an opportunity to devour me. You see, all is not well. <laughs> though I'm new. Some people become Christians and, and they think that, well, it's all better. Everything's okay and I can... No, you've only just entered into what we call the fight of faith. Say it again. The fight of faith. Don't you love that phrase? That's what we're involved in, isn't it? It's a moment by moment, day by day, fight of faith. I'm a new person. I no longer do these things. I am going to no longer do these things. The world, when we were, before we were Christians, we were in the world. We loved the world. Great. The world loved us, right? As soon as you become a Christian, does the world love you? Eh. Nope. Nope, it doesn't love you. You can become a Buddhist. The world will still love you. You become a Hindu. The world will still love you. You become a Christian. All of a sudden, the world does not love you anymore doesn't. The world hates you. Your flesh. All of a sudden, there's all sorts of conflict. You say, where did all this conflict come from? I never used to have this problem. But now, there's, it's like this, this dichotomy that's going on in me. Yeah, there's a warfare going on. The flesh battles against the spirit. And certainly the devil. I mean, before we were Christians... We're children of the devil, the Bible says. 
We're, we belong to him. We're in his kingdom. He ruled our life, and we never fought him. He had his hook in our mouth, and we went his way. No resistance. It was real easy. But as soon as you become a Christian, you become a new person, but not all is well with you. You've entered into the battle, the fight of faith. And it's a day-by-day, it's a moment-by-moment fight of faith. I believe what God says. I believe what God says. And I'm going to live my life based on what God says. It's a fight of faith. And sometimes it's going to take all the energy and all the strength you have to just stand and to trust him. It's a fight of faith. And you can't see. You, you, you can't grasp all the things that are going on. It's a fight of faith. There are going to be times when it's going to seem absolutely unreasonable. Times when it's going to be overwhelming. It's a fight of faith. My God is for me. It's a fight of faith. How do you fight this fight of faith? How do you put on this new person? What are, the, what are the things that you do? Paul tells us the very first thing. He says, based on this truth of new life, believers are to change. And the very first thing they're to change, the very first thing they're to change is that they are to put off falsehood and they are to start speaking the truth to one another. That's the very first thing that we are to change. Now I want to give you some perspective to this term falsehood. In the NIV, the word is falsehood. The Greek word is pseudos, which we get pseudo this and pseudo that, which means you know fake this, fake that, not real. Pseudos, it means, it means it's a general term. It's an all-encompassing term. Everything that, that can be included in that category of falsehood. Some other translations, the word is lying. It's, pseudos is translated as lying. Lying is not really that good a translation because when you think of lying, you think just only of outright verbal lies. You, you lie to somebody. But it includes much more, and I want to acquaint you with something of what it means in terms of this word falsehood. Falsehood means not only outright lying, but it also includes the idea of falsehood by not speaking. I mean, you can lie by not speaking, can't you? It also means by allowing something to be said which is wrong, just allowing that to happen. That's falsehood. You can perpetrate a falsehood, you can perpetrate a lie, if you will, with even a look, can't you? Falsehood includes exaggeration. Anybody ever exaggerated? Embellished, little story, some about your life and your sharing. The attention is on you. You have the moment. You go to tell this little story, and, and all of a sudden the details seem not quite so powerful, not so impressive. And so you, you, you kind of add some bulbs and put some tinsel and glitter on this thing, and you, you begin to embellish and add to it. And you have this incredible tale. That people are going, wow. 
Exaggeration, embellishment, that's a form of falsehood. Put it off. See, because that really appeals to our sense of what? Pride. We want the attention on us. Cheating, form of falsehood. You ever been tempted to cheat on your income tax? Some have. You sit there, you know, you're in your little kitchen, kitchen table, late night, little deduction here, a little deduction there. Well, they wouldn't miss this. I can get a couple extra things out of that. Cheating. You ever cheated mentally on your spouse? You ever cheated on a test? You ever cheated on any kind of assignment or responsibility that you've been given, trusted with? Cheating. It's a form of falsehood. Foolish promises. You ever made a foolish promise? A foolish promise is something you know you can't keep or you have no intention of keeping. Oh, I'll be there. You can count on me. You know, you get to know somebody. We have a nickname for them. We call, we call them no-show. Oh, I'll be there. Is no-show going to be here? Well, he said he was. Promises. Here's a great promise. Till death do us part. Till death do us part. The Bible says that if you make a promise, if you make a vow... You should keep it. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. But you see, when you make foolish promises, when you break promises, that's a form of falsehood, isn't it? Betraying confidence. Has anybody ever told you something in confidence and you betrayed it? That's a form of falsehood. Now, there are certain things, certain things that are shared with us, that we're sworn to secrecy, that we ought not to be sworn to secrecy over. People come to me and they say, I've got to tell you something, but you've got to promise not to tell anybody. I say, wait a minute, don't handcuff me that way. In my role, in my position as a pastor, I may deem it necessary to have to tell somebody. And so if, if this is something you absolutely are forbidding me to say, don't tell me. But there are very real and very genuine secrets, there are very real confidences that we can and must keep. And we have to learn to discern those things. And if we break those confidences without permission, without knowledge of the other party, we're perpetrating a falsehood. Flattery. Flattery. Flattery is another form of falsehood. I'm not talking about paying compliments. I compliment my wife, how precious, how lovely, how wonderful she is, how red she is right now. <laughs> I'm talking about flattery, not genuine compliments. Genuine compliments build people up. Flattery only ends up tearing them down. We flatter people because we want to get out of them what we want to get out of them. We're not seeking to bless that person. And flattery, quite simply, is another form of falsehood. Making excuses. You ever made an excuse? Anybody ever made an excuse? It's a form of falsehood. 
writing. Stay awake. <laughs> you didn't think I'd do it, did you? <laughs> Making excuses is another form of falsehood. Oh, but you don't understand. Let me explain to you. <laughs> hey, man, I don't want any excuses. You said you'd be there. You said you'd do it. You weren't there. You weren't there. Well, that's unreasonable. I don't need an excuse. I don't need an excuse. Because the vast majority of excuses are falsehoods. They're lies. Do you have a feeling for this thing of falsehood? Do you see why it's so important if you're to live out the Christian life, if you're to put on the new self, the most fundamental thing that you've got to do first and foremost before anything else is to learn how, be committed to putting off falsehood in any form. You cannot put on the new self. You won't be able to live out the new self and first until you've learned how to put off falsehood. I can't love another person. I can't love God. I can't be in a relationship with another person until first I quit lying to that person. Until I quit trying to deceive that person. Until I quit trying to hide from that person. That's why Paul starts it all off. This whole process of putting on the new self starts first with putting off lying and start telling the truth. Do we need to hear that? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. There are so many people in the church today who don't know what it means to put on the new person, who are so incredibly frustrated, and the first thing that they've got to learn to do is to start being truthful. And when they put off the falsehoods, things begin to fall in place. God begins to do things in their life. We're a nation of people who lives in denial. We live in the darkness, though we profess to walk in the light. We're liars. Now, there's seven reasons the Lord gave me for putting off falsehood. Let me just run through these reasons with you. They all make sense. They're all good reasons to put off falsehood. They all point to why Paul picks this as the very first element to put off and to put on truth. This is so critical to your life as a Christian. The first reason why we should put off falsehood and put on the truth is that, quite simply, we've been recreated in the image of God. Paul says in verse 24, we've been created to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. We've been created to be like him. Paul writes to Titus, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, God does not lie. The writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. It's inconsistent with his nature. God is the essential, the everlasting, the eternal truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus over and over and over in the gospel says, I tell you the truth. 
Now, if we've been recreated, born again, made like him, have his life living in us, we're made for fellowship with him, like him, does it not make sense then that we should put off falsehood and put on the truth? Live out what it means to be like him? Does that make sense? David says in Psalm 51, verse 6, in his prayer to God, he says, Oh God, oh Lord, you desire truth in the inner parts. You desire truth in the inner parts. The second reason why we should put off falsehood and put on the truth, not only because we're like God, but because being like God requires that the most essential characteristic of the Christian life be truth. That's, that ought to be the most essential characteristic of the Christian life. Truth. Think about that. I mean, there's, this is in such contrast with the world. The world doesn't promote the truth. The godless don't promote the truth. Why? Because they're without God. They're without the truth. How in the world can they promote the truth? They can say true things, but they don't have the truth. And the Christian life is in direct contrast to the life of the godless, those without God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes this, God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants men to be saved. He wants to bring them into a knowledge of the truth. He wants to bring them out of the darkness and into the light. Is truth, is truth something just to be applauded Huh? I mean, when you hear truth, applaud it, say, whoo, enjoy it intellectually. It becomes an intellectual exercise. No, truth is not just to be applauded. Truth is to be applied. It's to be applied. It's to be worked out. Worked out in our life. Paul says in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fight of faith. Work out this truth. Live it out. Why? Because God's in you. And he's working in you. You want to realize what he's working in you? Cooperate with him. Alan sang a song was it Friday night, Jericho? Or, or, Friday night, or was it last night? Friday? You know, we asked the Holy Spirit to come, and the Lord gave Alan a, a beautiful word to the congregation about Jericho. And it was about the walls of Jericho. And as, as Alan was saying that, God gave me a simultaneous word as an application. And so when he finished, I just shared with the congregation, I said, you know what? There's so many people here tonight facing a wall of Jericho in their life. That this wall, they've, they've gone around it, they've, they've looked at it, they've, they've been intimidated by it. They don't know how it's going to come down. How did the wall come down around the city of Jericho? Do you remember? 
in, in Joshua? You remember how that came down? Because Israel followed God's instructions to the T. What's that called? Obedience. What's that called? Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's that called? It's called walking in, living in, working out the fight of faith. It made absolutely no sense to walk around that city. That's absurd. Walk around the city, don't utter a peep, just walk around the city and go back to camp. And all the people in Jericho are standing on the city walls mocking and laughing after a few days. Can you imagine what it would take to get back out there and walk around that city wall? A walk of faith in strict obedience to what God says, do it my way, though you can't see how I'm going to work it out, that wall is coming down. Work out your salvation. Apply the truth. Apply the truth. Don't just applaud it. Don't just give it intellectual assent. Apply it. Real understanding, a real grasping of the truth, always results in application. And when there is no application, the problem is that there's no real understanding. There's no real grasping. The truth hasn't gripped your heart. You're not holding on to it with all your strength because it leads to no application. And so the, the premier characteristic, if you will, of the Christian life is truthfulness, not falsehood, because it goes back to God's very own character in our new nature. We're like him. And if we're to have fellowship with him and walking with him in the light, then we are to be people of truth. The third point, the Christian who lies gives the devil a foothold in their life, actually demonstrates fellowship with the devil. Sometimes I don't think we see this. If you're lying, you're giving Satan a foothold in your life. If you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, he already has control of your life. That's a, that's a foregone conclusion. In John chapter 8, verse 44, John's Gospel... Jesus tells us something significant. He says, Satan is the father of lies. He is the father of lies. I mean, it is important for us to see, from Jesus' point of view, to see that the lie, in all of its evil character, finds its source in Satan and his own vile evil character. Lying is absolutely the epitome of the character of Satan. Lying. In Acts chapter 5, turn there, page 11, 16. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. This is a familiar passage to many people, but it bears tremendously on our topic. Luke writes this. He says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Now there was a, a covenant, there was agreement in the early church in Jerusalem, that if people were in need, those people who had property would sell it, and they'd bring the proceeds of the sale, lay it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would distribute the funds uh, to those who had need. So here's, there have been some people going around and, and ministering and selling property, and you read that from the previous chapter. 
Now there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They want to be included in this. And so they have a piece of property. They go sell it. Verse 2 says, With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Peter gets a word of knowledge from God about what's going on here. God lets him in. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it? Now listen to what he says. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to me and to the church? Is that what it says? What's it say? Who did he lie to? Yeah. Did he lie to Peter? Did he lie to the church? Yes. But who did he really lie to? The Holy Spirit. God! But I want you to see the dynamic. Satan didn't just have a foothold. He filled Ananias' heart. And Ananias lied. Deceived. And lied to God. Do you suppose that God... Do you suppose that... An, how in the world... Ananias, don't you know that God knows what's going on? And he goes on to say, now Ananias, listen, the property was yours. You could sell it whenever you wanted. The money was yours. The proceeds of the sale, you could keep it. You could, keep, you could give any part of it. But you perpetrated a deceit, a falsehood. He says, you have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Had a heart attack. Fainted dead away. Some people interpret that and say God killed him. A form of discipline. I'll leave that to you to discern. The point is, he's dead. Now look at the next phrase. He fell down and died, and, the, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Great fear seized them. Let me ask you a question. Here's Jim. Jim and his lovely wife, Naomi. They sell a piece of property. Did you bring the full tithe today, by the way? <laughs> Let's say that Jim nods. He says, yes, Pastor, I brought the full tithe today. And then comes time, we pass the offering plate, and Jim drops it in. But in reality, the full tithe isn't there. And he no sooner drops it in, it falls over dead. Naomi looks, says, uh-oh. Would great fear seize your hearts? I mean, especially after we talked about this passage. Yeah. I mean, in conjunction, you just saw him drop it in the offering plate, and pfft, he's over, he's gone. Know me? Would that rip your heart? Yeah. Rip my heart. You see, this is an object lesson to the early church and to the rest of the church as they read that account... This is what God thinks about lying. These are some of the devastating effects that lying leads to, falsehood leads to. Beloved, as a Christian, if you lie, though you're lying to a brother, 
You're lying to yourself. Ultimately, you're lying to God. And this, is, this example in the book of Acts is an illustration of what God thinks about lying. And the devastating results that come from it. We need to take it seriously. Falsehood. In Genesis chapter 3, there's another reason we ought to put off falsehood, is because the very first sin of man came as the result of a lie, indeed a lie about God. Satan came and he tempted the woman. He lied about God's character. He said, you can't trust him. He's holding out on you. The day you eat of the tree is the day you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Is it a desirable thing to know evil? No, it's not, but he sure makes it sound like it is, doesn't he? You see, there's every reason to put off falsehood because the moment you allow it into your life, you've given Satan territory. Do you remember when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross? He says to his disciples, he says, he says, the devil is coming. The destroyer is coming. But he has nothing in me. He has no foothold. He has nothing to hold on to. He has no right. He said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. Are you giving him a place in your life by lying? Can a believer fall into lying? Yes, just like any other sin, can't they? A believer can fall into lying. But if that person's life is a continual flow of lies from a heart that truly seeks to deceive, that person has no basis, no biblical basis, to believe that they're a Christian. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, shall we continue lying? No way. How can we continue in it? We died to it. There's no more place in our life. So though you occasionally fall into a lie, it's not our lifestyle. We're moving away from it. We're getting away from falsehoods. No more falsehoods. This is how you put on the new self. Listen to Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, what Paul says about liars. Speaking of liars, he says this, All liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. What is the fiery lake of burning sulfur? Hell. Hell. Liars. That's where they're going. We tend to think of sin in these, in these major kinds of ways. Lying is absolutely despicable in God's sight. Where do we get this term, white lie? Why it's called a little white lie? Is that a sanctified lie? Is that a lie that's okay to tell? Is that what we believe? It's perpetrating a falsehood. And we give Satan a place in our life. And it leads to devastation every time. Here's a fourth point. Lying is the most prominent, it is the most common characteristic of a godless life. Lying is the most prominent, the most common characteristic of a life of people without God. Let me give you an example. Our society is absolutely dependent on lying. Our society is absolutely dependent on falsehood. If, for some reason, Everybody made up their mind to start telling the truth. 
our entire society would end up in chaos. And if it, you wouldn't know what to believe. I mean, as it is, we're very stable. We know everybody's lying to us. <laughs> we know that. I mean, when you go to buy a car, and please, if there's any car salesmen here, don't be offended. But if you go to buy a car, you automatically go in knowing that they're going to they're lie to you. Don't you? You believe that. You're convinced of that. You watch car commercials on television, and you know that guy is lying right through his teeth. You know that you're not getting that car for the price that he's saying. You know there's a come on. You watch TV commercials, and you know you can't figure it out, but somewhere you know you're absolutely convinced they're lying to me. I mean, our whole society is built on it. Governments lie to governments. Husbands lie to wives. Wives lie to husbands. I mean, it's, it's all in balance here. What would happen if all of a sudden everybody turned around and began to tell everybody around them what they really thought and believed about each other? Huh? And what would happen? I mean, you would have resentment and animosity that knows no bounds. You would have confusion. Our culture and our society is dependent on lying. We've grown accustomed to it. It's part of life. Every, every, I mean, you know, you listen to the president, you listen to the congressman, you listen to all the officials, the bureaucrats, they tell you this thing and that thing, and in the back of your mind you're saying, baloney. You're lying. You're lying. Why can't you tell us the truth? Because they can't tell the truth. Because the truth is not in them. They're in the darkness. They lie of necessity. And our whole society is built on lies. And that's why the church is in such stark contrast to the world. When you come into the church and you begin to encounter people who really are changed, you come into an environment that ought to be safe and loving and encouraging, gracious, a place where you can hear the truth, a place where you can encounter the truth, a place where you can experience the truth. But not in our world, not in our world, the fifth point, lying really complicates life. Think about that. I mean, lying really complicates... Ask yourself, why is life so hard? Why do things get so difficult? Why do these situations get so complicated? Well, if you ferret right back down to the beginning, probably there's a lie down there at the start. We tell this lie, and then we tell another lie to cover that one. And then we perpetrate another falsehood to cover those things. And then we do it again, and it's layer upon layer upon layer of falsehood and lie, and we wonder why... Things are so difficult. We wonder why we live in fear. We wonder why we live just absolutely afraid that we'll be found out. Somebody is going to find me out. Somebody's going to expose me. Somebody's going to tell the truth. And we can never relax. We can never enjoy life. We walk around anxiety-ridden, fearful, because our life has been built on lies. Are you lying? Are you perpetrating falsehoods? You're building on sand and you're setting yourself up for a horrendous fall. Not only does lying complicate life, lying also shows the despicable nature, the despicable character of sin itself. 
Paul says, sin deceived me in Romans chapter 7. Sin deceived me. It lied to me. That's its very nature, is it perpetrates lying. I mean, there is nothing, there is nothing so despised as a liar. Think about that. Ask people, what do you think of a person who is a liar? What is engendered in your heart towards that person? Joy? Warmth? You love being in fellowship with that person who is a liar? No. We find ourselves despising a person who is a liar. I mean, we'll excuse people for many things, right? I mean, we'll go to great lengths with people. But we have no use for a liar. Right? Sure. No use for a liar. And yet lying is the most common of all sins, isn't it? Falsehood. Falsehood. Lastly, point number seven. Lying is incredibly destructive to the very doctrine of the church itself. You know what the fundamental doctrine of the church is? It's in this book. It's what Paul's been talking to us about. Unity. Oneness. We're members of one body. We're members of each other. He uses the, the metaphor of a body to describe this intimate unity between all the members, all the parts. And it's lying and it's falsehood that is destructive, that cuts at the very root, the very heart of the doctrine of the church. Unity. We desire fellowship, don't we? We love fellowship. What's critical for fellowship to occur? Trust. Trust. If you've got trust, you have the basis for real true fellowship, don't you? And if you've got real true fellowship going on, then you've got the basis for unity. True? Now, lying comes in. What does lying do to trust? Destroys it, doesn't it? You lied to me. How many people have been lied to by somebody they intimately trusted, and that lie has created them in a great sense of wariness about that person? I'm not sure I can trust you. You've lied to me so many times. And based on that, based on lack of trust, there can never be real, true fellowship, right? And if there's no true fellowship, then there is no unity, which is the fundamental doctrine of the church. You see how, how lying destroys the church? When you lie to somebody in the body, you're not only lying to them, you're lying to yourself. Not only are you hurting them, you're hurting yourself. And you destroy that very delicate thing, that very beautiful thing called unity. What would happen, just use, let's use the body again. What would happen if my brain started sending lying signals to my feet? And I was trying to walk along and I began to stumble and fall. What would happen if my feet began to send lying signals back to my brain? What would happen if my hands, the nerve endings in my hands, sent lying signals back to my brain that I would reach out and touch something and it was scalding hot, but the signal said it was ice cold or tepid, and I kept my hand there? What would happen if my eyes sent lying signals to my brain and I'm driving my car and I'm going around a curve, but there's no curve there? You see what lying does and how it's destructive to the unity of the body? How falsehood is destructive? Put off falsehood. 
Now, it should be said that telling the truth, we've got to talk about that for just a second here, because we've emphasized on, on really putting off falsehood and putting on the truth. But in, in, in terms of putting on the truth and speaking the truth to one another, we have to remind ourselves that that does not require us to tell everything. We're not required in the name of speaking the truth to speak and tell genuine confidences and secrets as we talked about earlier. It doesn't require us to tell everything we know without regard for impact. It doesn't require us to unburden all of our ill feelings on those we dislike in a kind of pseudo-honesty promoted by Freudian psychology and other philosophies. Tell them what you think. Let them know where you're at. Careful. Careful. But I saved the best to last. I think this is the best. The emphasis of Paul's verse is putting off falsehood and speaking the truth to one another. But I want to pull it back and I want to say this. Put off falsehood and quit lying to yourself and start telling yourself the truth. Start rehearsing and reaffirming the truth. So many of us have grown up with all manner of abuse in our life, some much worse than others, but we've grown up with it. Most of us have grown up with a lousy sense of worth and value. So many of us are so used to looking at ourselves and denigrating ourselves, putting ourselves down. I'm worthless. I'm, I'm really nothing. I, I don't count. I'm unimportant. No one cares. I can't do it. And we've been so programmed to think that way that we keep rehearsing that program. We keep rehearsing that thinking. We keep telling ourselves those lies over and over and over and over and over. I spent 45 minutes in here last night and sitting over in this section talking with a young woman who in, her life is, is, is a mess internally. And she recounted all the stuff that had gone on over her years of growing up in an alcoholic home and being abused and whatnot. Familiar story because I've heard it so many times. Tragic but familiar. And so I said, stop, stop. Because she was recounting and, and saying, in effect, that I'm nothing, I'm worthless. That she really believed that. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you remember when I gave the exercise to the congregation a year or two ago, and I, and I said, go home and, and, and stand in front of the mirror and talk to yourself in the mirror? Look into your eyes in the mirror and say, I'm a beautiful child of God. God loves me. He cherishes me. I'm precious in his sight. When God looks at me, when God thinks of me, he smiles. Now this girl, by her own account, is all alone in this world. She has nobody else around her. 
She's isolated at work. She's isolated herself. She's afraid to step out. She's absolutely discouraged. She lives in constant fear. She's become a Christian. It's wonderful now that she hears about Jesus. But she doesn't know how to put on the new self. She can't break out of this. And I said, you'll never break out of it unless you do this fight of faith and unless you go and you learn to talk to yourself and quit lying to yourself. Unless you start saying, God does love me. He is for me. You don't need to whip yourself anymore. So many people are carrying around all this guilt. They keep whipping themselves. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I don't have to whip myself anymore. I won't whip myself anymore. I said, did you do that exercise? Did you talk to yourself in the mirror? She says, well, yeah, I, I tried it for a couple of days and it felt foolish and I thought this is not going to work and I quit. I said, it's a fight of faith. You can't quit. You've got to stay in there. You've got to make yourself look in the mirror. You've got to make yourself talk to yourself. And somewhere along the line, you're going to begin to believe it. And the minute you believe it, you're going to be able to walk into your office with your head up high. Not confident in yourself. Confident of him who lives in you. And you'll be set free. You see, you're learning to put on the new self. You're learning to put off the falsehood. You're learning to speak the truth, not only to others, but to yourself. How we need to know this. You may find yourself in a, in a situation when there's no one around you who, who really, from your point of view, cares about you, or is taking the time to nurture you, and, and so forth. God will do it. But you've got to go to Him. You've got to stand there with him by faith. You've got to believe what the Bible says by faith. You've got to let the truth sink down deep in you by faith. Beloved, it is a fight of faith against the flesh, against the world, and against the devil, and they are all arrayed against you. But who's for you? If my God is for you, who can be against you? Bring it on. Throw your worst at me. My God. My God who created the universe is for me. And I'm going to stand on his word. I'm going to stand on his word. And I'm going to put off falsehood. I'm going to put on the truth. I'm going to walk in newness of life. Father, we love you this morning. Lord, how I love your word. Lord, how your word is true. How it stirs my heart and my soul. How it's a source of life and truth to my thinking. And the real orientation for my life. Father, I pray that in all these things that we've considered this morning, that each one of us 
would look into our own hearts and our own minds and our own life, and we would in every way put off every falsehood because we love you and we'd put on truth. We'd walk in the truth, walk in the light. Lord, make us bold. Make us bold to walk this fight of faith, to stand firm, to not give in to the enemy, to the flesh, to the intimidations of this world. You're a great God. And we know that as we walk with you, the fruit of what you're already doing in us will begin to come to the surface. Thank you, Lord. Father, bless this great body. Bless each and every one according to your purpose and will. Set the captives free. Give them a vision of your glorious work in their life and what they can be as they put on the new self. We love you this morning. We thank you that you're our God. We thank you that you reign, that you rule, and there is no other God beside you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.